He was manning a 50 caliber machine gun atop a Humvee. And as they were doing route clearance, the first person that came running out of a ditch with a gun was a little boy. And Jason said, I don't want to kill no kid. And his fellow Marines said, take him out. So he looked back down into the Humvee and he said it again. I don't want to kill no kid. And they said, Marine, do what you were trained to do. And I'll end this story by saying that every night when Jason goes to sleep, the face that he sees is the face of that little boy. That was Richard Doss, psychologist, author, military motivational speaker, and suicide prevention expert. His TED Talk, Train Not to Cry, The Challenges of Being a Soldier, encapsulates the mindsets soldiers must have in order to be what they think of as courageous. He references a soldier he met who faced a moral dilemma and was forced to kill an innocent child, contradicting his sense of judgment. This conflict transcends generations of soldiers in combat and is often explored in numerous works of literature. For example, The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien is a series of short stories involving various soldiers who navigate times of war and are often pressured to overlook their morals and do the unthinkable. Through his novel, O'Brien argues that in war, in order to be courageous in other people's eyes, morals must be set aside. Yet, the courage that results from this absence of morality is really just another form of fear. True courage comes not from what other people's perceptions of you are, but your own perceptions of yourself. When a loved one dies, most of us resort to grieving and faith to get us through. However, in a war setting, death has a different definition. Because it is so common, it becomes normalized, which makes soldiers immune to it. Instead of mourning the deaths of their fellow soldiers, they find themselves unable to express sadness. No matter how close they were to the victim, it is difficult to process their feelings because they are numb to the shock. It's tragic, but it's the truth. They're expected to be tough and not succumb to the pain. So out of fear of judgment, the men set aside their emotions and prioritize their survival. This results in an absence of morality and presence of what they believe others perceive as courage. However, in reality, this version of courage is simply fake. In The Things They Carried, O'Brien argues the failure of soldiers to mourn their fellow men is reflective of war's ability to desensitize death and lighten its meaning. This is shown by the death of Ted Lavender and the ways that the others coped in reaction to it. Yeah, on page 17, O'Brien says, It was hard to feel anything except surprise. It seemed unchristian. Yet he wished he could find some great sadness or even anger, but the emotion wasn't there and he couldn't make it happen. Mostly he felt pleased to be alive. Kiowa feels guilty for not feeling sad at Lavender's death, but this just demonstrates the power war has over men and that it can diminish their sense of morality because they're all trying to fight for their lives. War makes you selfish and the author's trying to get this across through the attitudes of the characters. The guilt Kiowa expressed did not make up for his lack of emotion regarding his friend's death. Unlike Jimmy, Kiowa, like most of the men, could not bring himself to mourn Lavender, no matter how much he wanted to. 
Through Kiowa's perspective, O'Brien is saying that guilt is a part of human nature and that soldiers cannot escape from it. However, the mob mentality of men influences each individual to fake their own courage and not let fear or sadness be expressed, as it is simply uh, seen as a sign of weakness. The tendency of soldiers to mask their true emotions suggests war has a strong impact on their behavior. Not only their morals are set aside for the sake of their country, or as they do unthinkable acts, but they are set aside for the sake of their pride and reputation. They suppress their sadness into looking strong, and doing so, ignoring their morals. As Richard Doss puts it, They wear camouflage that allows them to hide in plain sight, but so too are they able to hide their feelings and emotions, pain, and sorrow. Soldiers are scared of appearing vulnerable in the face of potential death. They show this through the use of humor as a coping mechanism, and by the way they carry themselves, which is often with a sense of toughness. The tension that results from one's death is almost scripted. They act and say the same things when they are confronted with death, often making dark or obscene jokes to prevent anyone from thinking they are weak. On page 19, there's actually a quote about this. Uh, when someone died, it wasn't quite dying because in a curious way, it seemed scripted. And because they had their lines mostly memorized, irony mixed with tragedy, and because they called it by other names, as if to insist and destroy the reality of death itself. Yeah, it's interesting because in our world, when we experience death or see death, it seems so strange. It seems so surreal. And yet to these soldiers, because they are constantly surrounded by death, mm -hmm. it seems almost routine. Yeah, and the fact that they, like, memorize their supposed lines sort of proves, you know, they are afraid of judgment. And if they had shown their true emotions, it would have been more raw and more real. But um, because they set their moral compasses aside, um, it suggests they're afraid. Yeah, it's like the script is there to save them. If they didn't have the script, then they would constantly be breaking down, which would put the lives of the other soldiers in danger, right? So they have to, so they stick to the script. Yeah. They stick to the script, then they can live. The pointlessness of caring contributes to the absence of morals, as the brutality of war is intense. Soldiers often see war as so risky that it's not worth getting attached to people or valuing one's own emotions. For example, on page 80, he says, Four guys go down a trail. A grenade sails out. One guy jumps in and takes the blast, but it's a killer grenade and everyone dies anyway. I think this is kind of talking about how sometimes war makes it really difficult to prioritize your values and be the hero in these situations because it is so brutal. And they're all afraid of dying, so they must put survival as their number one priority. And really part of that also goes kind of goes against the script, right? Because even though previously we talked about how there's a script of when people die, at this point you can't really predict when someone is going to die. So even though you might save someone in one minute, uh, much like Ted, La Ted Lavender as he was shot coming back from going to the bathroom, um, they could just die at a random moment at the next. So you never know when someone's going to die or how someone's going to die. Thus, the inevitability of it seems so large. And that's why people often ask the question, you know, why be moral if it's all going to get, it's, all it's going to get you is dead. And in order to survive, um, I think Tim O'Brien is saying, you have to be selfish and you have to protect yourself. chapter The Man I Killed, the narrator discusses aspects of the personality of the man he shot. For example, he says he had no stomach for violence. He loved mathematics. His eyebrows were thin and arched like a woman's, and at school, the boys sometimes teased him about how pretty he was. 
the arched eyebrows and long shapely fingers and on the playground they mimicked a woman's walk and made fun of his smooth skin and love for mathematics the young man could not make himself fight them o'brien says this on page 121 the narrator continues to imagine as if he knew the person he had killed well and is inventing this elaborate backstory to simulate his sense of guilt in himself and his actions he also attempts to justify his actions claiming it was entirely automatic I did not hate the young man. I did not see him as an enemy. I did not ponder issues of morality or politics or military duty. I crouched and kept my head low. O'Brien says this on page 126. The narrator is trying to explain himself in the moment, trying to justify his actions by saying that it was not his intention. However, since he is defensive of his own actions, it shows how common it is to kill people in the moment because of the rush of the war. Although the narrator shows his sense of guilt, which is innate, he never considered the morality in his decision to kill this man. This supports O'Brien's claim that morals are set aside when it comes to war, and replaced with a feeling of utter fear, of failure, and judgment. One veteran was asked about a particular kill that he remembered. This is what he had to say. You don't shoot women or, or children on the battlefield, but we were just so, we were just so into the moment. Uh, we watched her pick up the rifle, and that was, well, the machine gun, and that was... Uh, that was the cue, and we just lit her up. And I remember just watching, you know, three, there was three of us, and we just opened up, and we just blood up against the wall. She just slumped over, and it's like, all right, we got her. In this case, um, even though it was the norm not to kill women or children, uh, this man had to because he saw her pick up the rifle and he knew that she was a threat at the time. And this just really shows that, you know, you never know who's the enemy, and you just have to be willing to take risks in order to protect yourself. And we know historically this also happened in Vietnam quite a bit. Because of this fighting style that the Viet Cong soldiers used, you didn't really know who was friend or foe. And this is what uh, eventually led to the accusations of soldiers killing babies back home, is that a lot of times soldiers wouldn't know who was a friend or a foe, or um, someone who was a woman or a child would pick up a gun and they would have to shoot them. And thus... That led to kind of the social alienation that veterans face afterwards, which really complicated this, the issue of post-traumatic stress disorder. Considering the atrocities that they had already faced in war, public outcry only made the issues that soldiers had when they were coming home worse. Um, the isolation that they felt not being around their platoons was one thing, but also having people who were supposed to be heroes hated by the community because of things that they were told to do made the situation amplified infinitely um a lot of people seem to think that breaking morals is synonymous with abandoning your own humanity which isn't necessarily the case because in wartime humanity and courage don't necessarily go together um soldiers tend to go into war thinking a lot about what courage means and that courage is acts of heroism when in reality that's not necessarily the case um, fear is considered cowardice in times of war, and so because of that, courage isn't necessarily being a hero. Courage is just making sure that you aren't scared, or at least you're not showing that you're scared, which kind of brings us to Tim O'Brien's message about what real courage is and what fake courage is. People came into the war with sort of a preconceived notion of courage, heroism, and bravery. Yet the men realized that the idea of bravery and the reality of bravery in the war are vastly different. 
This is shown on page 37 um, when it says, All of us, I suppose, like to believe that in a moral emergency, we will behave like the heroes of our youth, bravely and forthrightly, without thought of personal loss or discredit. I think that with this quote, O'Brien is trying to say that the men entered into the war with this idea of what bravery is, and it's this idea of some sort of selfless and heroic act in which you save a ton of people and maybe even sacrifice yourself, but it fails to ignore the emotional context that goes along with it, the loss, the trauma, the fear. Everything that you see in war takes a toll on you, whether or not you notice it or not, and I don't really think that O'Brien feels that that's recognized in what society's version of a heroic or brave soldier is. So I think that it kind of became really shocking as the men entered the war because their idea of courage was completely redefined in a matter of minutes. Um, so O'Brien really is trying to refer to something that the outside world doesn't acknowledge about the acts of heroism, and that's the pain that lies under it. Um, the pain of seeing your friends die, the pain of not being with your family, the pain of killing people, and the pain of seeing other people killed, even if you don't know them, it's still traumatic. And so as soon as those men entered Vietnam, everything changed and courage was not selflessness. In fact, people saw courage as the opposite. It was selfishness about saving yourself and about not showing fear and about not showing that you cared about anything except for the war. And so courage was ignoring pain and the pain of the war that underlies what we would ordinarily define as courage. But it wasn't really heroism at all. Courage was just fear. And it was very well masked, but it, in the end, was just fear. In the chapter on the Rainy River, the narrator talks about um, wanting to go to Canada to avoid uh, having to go to the war. And he sort of faces a moral dilemma here because he doesn't think that the war is just, and he doesn't believe in what um, people going to the war are fighting for. Um, yet he's afraid of what others might think and what his family might think and his friends might think uh, if he doesn't go to the war. Um, so for these reasons, he ends up going to the war and doesn't stand up for what he believes in. Um, and there's a quote on page 58 where he says, I was a coward, I went to war. And I think this just really uh, drives home what Eliza was talking about earlier. And although he went to the war to make his family and friends think that he was being courageous, um, in reality, it was the opposite. And it was actually just fear that drove his decision to go to war. Um, and this was because he wasn't doing what he felt was right at the time, but just what he felt that others would think was the right thing to do. So like the narrator in that quote that Kate mentioned was saying, courage is obviously highly valued among not only the men in the platoon, but also the world in general. And so O'Brien alludes to the fact that this courage that the men in the world valued so highly wasn't really courage at all. It was a mask that was meant to cover what was truly inside, fear. Yeah, on page 21 he says, It was not courage exactly. The object was not valor. Rather, they were too frightened to be cowards. Strangely enough, O'Brien seems to be telling readers that the courage that was displayed in the war and that the courage that was valued among soldiers was not courage at all, but rather the fear of truth, fear of reality, and the fear of what we later find out is true courage, the ability to face reality and yourself. You see... Tim O'Brien is saying that the soldiers really did care about what other people thought of them, and they did care what they did, but they had to mask that. And so they masked that by not caring at all. Because the one weakness that every soldier had, and that every soldier needed to cover up, because they would be a coward if they didn't, was humanity. So when the soldiers were so nonchalant about things like death, and things that they feared, and the inevitable, they weren't 
losing their humanity, they were covering it because they wanted to be brave. So they're right. It wasn't courage and it wasn't valor, but it was just because they didn't want to be cowards. And so the ultimate fear was not death. It wasn't the inevitable injury or the loss of somebody that you loved or being away from your family. It was the fear of being afraid of, its, of, of fear itself. Lastly, something that Tim O'Brien talks about that I think was really powerful was the fact that the soldiers did acknowledge the fact that they were all putting on an act, at least to some extent, and a lot of them desired the freedom from that act. So um, on page 34 in the chapter Spin, Norman Boker sits down and tells Tim O'Brien, if I could have one wish, anything, I'd wish for my dad to write me a letter and say, it's okay if I don't win any medals. I think that even he realized that this courage wasn't real, and I think that he wanted to be free from the act, and so it was really powerful when he just wanted some type of relief, some type of relief from his father's expectations, some type of relief from his platoon's expectations, where he could finally just be human again, because all of those soldiers had been fighting not to be soldiers, but they had been fighting not to be human so that they could stay soldiers, because they already were, and... So they were slowly losing something that was so important to them, and I think that at times they were able to get some type of clarity and kind of realize that they were losing something that was really important and that they were doing what they were afraid of. They were becoming people that they weren't. And even though that's not necessarily what their fear was at that time, that was their fear entering the war. They didn't want to kill people. They didn't want to be monsters, but that's what they think they're becoming. And I think that at some points, these soldiers just wanted to be able to hear, it's okay for you to be truly brave. It's okay for you to say what you need to say and feel what you need to feel because that's what courage is. Courage is not not having emotions and not showing your humanity. Courage is having the guts to step up and say, I feel this way and to finally speak about something that might be hard to speak about in times where it might be hard to speak about the thing you want to. As the confetti went off, everyone lost their minds. The New England Patriots had just completed the largest comeback in NFL playoff history and won Super Bowl 51. Yet the best moment was between quarterback Tom Brady and wide receiver Julian Edelman. I love you, man, Julian Edelman said. I love you too. These moments reflect the hard work and dedication to their cause that these two men had over the course of a season and how much they appreciated each other's efforts to reach that common goal. Not only that, but they both had to help each other accomplish this feat. Brady had to throw on-the-nose passes, and Edelman had to make catches to get closer to the end zone. This bond to achieve a common goal is amplifying tenfold when lives are at stake. In Tim O'Brien's novel, The Things They Carried, Tim O'Brien demonstrates how overpowering soldiers' common mentality can be, even to the point of causing lifetime regret and murder. After Tim becomes injured, he is drawn into Azar's destructive mentality when he seeks revenge on the medic who failed to treat him eventually robbing him of his free will and turning him into the monster that lurked in the jungle. On page 199, he says, I was atrocity. I was the jungle fire. Jungle drums. I was the blind stare into the eyes of all those young corpses. I was the beast on their lips. The horror. The war. In this part, not only was Tim physically injured, his brotherhood was injured as well. He was, because he was injured, he was sort of removed from the troop and had to deal with it, with his physical ailments. And because of that, his troop sort of moved on from him. 
they kind of left him behind in the dust. They had other hardships beyond that point, and because of that, uh, Tim was no longer really able to relate to them. Because of this, he kind of hones in his anger on one individual, the medic who failed to treat him for shock. And through this mentality of losing his brotherhood, that soldier became an enemy soldier. In, and that's why the chapter is titled the, uh, Ghost, the Ghost Soldier, because they called Viet Cong ghost soldiers, and thus Jorgensen, the medic, became a ghost, ghost soldier. And in order to sort of avenge himself, and with that, which is kind of what he's doing right here, he m sort of makes a deal with the devil. Azar, throughout the book, kind of represents the worst impulses of soldiers, the most gruesome, violent, and overall disgusting tendencies that soldiers have, like when looking at dead bodies and committing atrocities. And so he m sort of makes a deal with his darker side in order to be able to accomplish revenge. However, in the end, that aggression that he has just turns in on himself. Azar says, um, later on page 202, except now you're a has-been. You're one of those American Legion type guys who dresses up like a nif in a nifty uniform and goes out to play and all. It's pitiful. So even his own aggression is sort of acknowledging him, saying, hey, nothing, this whole revenge, it's not going to help you. And even though Tim knows this, he still goes with it because the mentality of revenge and because the overall soldier's mentality of um, uh, being together is so strong and because he feels such a loss, he's going with it, even though he knows that it's not going to solve anything. And in the end, all that sort of revenge plot did for him was really just made him seem more pitiful because Jorgensen wasn't even scared by anything that he did. He knew that it was him, he knew that it was Tim, and thus um, Tim's so whole revenge plot, the whole um, him needing to avenge himself, just really fell flat on its face. There's a quote from um, Lord of the Rings' Return of the King, uh, which says, A day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship, but it is not this day. An hour of wolves and shattered shields when the age of men comes crashing down, but it is not the day. This day we fight. And I think it's really interesting that in this quote, um, it's kind of saying, you know, it's motivating soldiers to fight and saying courage only comes when we do fight. We protect our friends and we don't um, put them in danger. But in reality, this falsified perception of courage can come at the expense of our friends. Speaking of which, in the chapter of Friends, two soldiers form a bond that was so powerful that they were willing to kill each other uh, over the sake of pride. So in this section, we have two soldiers who basically form a pact um, that if one of them was going to become disabled, then the other one would kill them. And this actually does happen to one of them. And eventually he dies. And we hear from the perspective of the other soldier, Dave Jensen, on page 63, it says, Later we heard that Strunk died somewhere over Chulai, which seemed to relieve Dave Jensen of an, of an enormous weight. So when you're in everyday scenarios where there's constant death and violence going on, it seems that promises that are made really have to be carried out. And these two men knew this going in. 
And so when um, earlier, when Struck really um, expresses this fear, like, please don't kill me, please don't kill me, um, he knows that Jensen wasn't fooling around, that they were both being serious. And this, when this um, sort of bond was created, even though it might have at the time brought them closer together, um, it was, number one, illogical, because you can have a life if you're disabled. Uh, number two, it would really distance them because well, one of them would be dead. And overall, it just didn't make any sense. And the, the only purpose of it was to sort of bring people closer together, quote-unquote, and it really led to sort of violent end. Both of these examples just go to show how much relationships can affect our courage and how we express that courage and also our morality in general. Um, for the first example, when Tim is influenced by um, Azar and his destructive mentality and his tendencies, um, we can kind of see how the morality that he had turns into something much darker. It turns into a desire for revenge because at the time, that's what he thought was right. That's what Azar kind of influenced him into thinking was right, that because this person was responsible for him almost dying, that he deserved some type of pain that O'Brien also felt. Um, and so, you know, in the end, he became the monster. And in the end, you know, what he thought was doing something courageous, what he thought was saving himself and being a hero to himself, even if it was his past self that was, you know, injured and that wasn't, you know, tended to by Jorgensen, it wasn't courageous at all. Instead, it was just cruel. And that is the true absence of morality. That is when a relationship can completely destroy somebody. And at war, relationships are so important that when there's something... And they're so influential that when there's this brotherhood, you can really be influenced into doing anything. And um, I think the same thing kind of goes for the second example with the two soldiers forming the bond. Um, so when Strunk um, and... Jensen become friends they when they made that agreement I think that it almost was kind of supposed to be an act of courage it was supposed to be an acknowledgement that I would rather die than live weak I would rather die than live handicapped because then I wouldn't be able to be courageous anymore instead I would just sit there and I'd be useless and so outwardly it seems that that was an act of courage but you know when we get to the reality when the, when you know strength faces death that's kind of the first act of courage that we can see when he's begging Jensen not to kill him because it's showing how he truly feels, it's showing his truth, and it's finally removing that mask. And I think that, you know, Jensen's feeling of relief afterwards also was kind of this, this act of internal courage where he's acknowledging the fact that I don't want to kill somebody I care about, and this is the truth, and this is how I actually feel. And again, this is him taking off this mask that all of the soldiers had been wearing throughout this whole war, and that's, I think, what O'Brien is arguing, what, like, that's what true courage is. Um, the concept of relationships influencing morality is also seen in the chapter with Marianne Bell. Um, this one quote really stuck out to me on page 109. It says, for Marianne Bell, it seemed, Vietnam had the effect of a powerful drug. That mix of unnamed terror and unnamed pleasure that comes as the needle slips in and you know you're risking something. The endorphins start to flow and the adrenaline, and you hold your breath and creep quietly through the moonlit nightscapes. You become intimate with danger. You're in touch with the far side of yourself, as though it's another hemisphere, and you want to string it out and go wherever the trip takes you, and be host to all the possibilities inside yourself. Not bad, she'd said. 
He had not made her glow in the dark. She wanted more. She wanted to penetrate deeper into the mystery of herself. And after a time, she wanted the wanting became needing, which turned then into craving. I think Mary Ann Bell is really representative of how war can change someone um, in its ability to allow them to really set aside their moral compass. I remember at the beginning of the chapter, um, she pointed out to the soldiers, you know, why are we taking their lives like they're humans too? And I think for this quote to be at the end of the chapter, it really goes to show she's a completely different person. Um, she goes on page 106, you hide in this little fortress uh, behind wire and sandbags and you don't know, sometimes I want to eat this place. Um, and I think that quote, as well as her necklace of human tongues, um, is really just uh, representative of an absence of morality to the point where it's disgusting and it's it's not human anymore. And I think um, for this to happen to a girl as genuine and sweet as she was originally, um, not only breaks the heart of uh, her boyfriend or of the people around her who had loved her as she was, um, but breaks their heart because she isn't able to see what it's done to her and she thinks that it's completely logical. Yeah, and I know that we've been using uh, logic and morality in somewhat similar contexts, but in an environment like Vietnam, logic is sort of your moral guide, right? What is going to save the most amount of people? What is going to harm the least amount of people? And so when you play it as a numbers game, as a lot of humans sort of revert, revert back to when things are so complex, that kind of is your defining morality in such a chaotic place. This is also shown in um, the chapter called The Dentist. And despite the vulnerability that soldiers have about war and death, the mentality created uh, with this one soldier, Kurt Lemon, uh, was so strong that he pulled his own tooth uh, in order to show toughness. On page 84, it says, uh, when he came to, there was a funny new look on his face, almost sheepish, as if he'd been caught committing some terrible crime. Yeah, and I don't think it's really necessarily a terrible crime to show fear of going to the dentist. It's something that, you know, we all have our little irrational fears and phobias, and so it's completely natural uh, to have this sort of fear, and yet he feels like in the context of the group that it is wrong to have fear, and I think morally you have to have fear. Um, in order to be a moral person, you have to have things that you are afraid of and things that you are afraid to do. Because if you're willing to do anything, then that means you're willing to do something very dangerous and very dark. And this sort of relates back to our thesis, too, because the absence of fear is really fake courage. It's not real courage. Because real courage is when you're putting your morals first and you're doing what you believe is the right thing to do. And in this case, that would be not go and not pull his own tooth out. Um, but he felt like he had to put on this brave face and... Uh, express this fake courage in the form of an absence of fear, um, which we know is not uh, what Tim O'Brien is supporting. Um, also, just relating to that, I think that a lot of, you know, what constituted courage to these men um, is this control, you know, control over their emotions, control over situations that, you know, the few situations that they can have control over, because if you think about it, this war was an absolute free-for-all. There were so many things that were just absolutely unpredictable that nobody could have foreseen, and I think that that was really heartbreaking to the soldiers, but they couldn't have shown that. And so when there was a situation where they can control their fear or whether they can control literally any part of the situation, I think that for them, that's their opportunity to be like, okay, I'm going to be courageous. And so I think that for Kurt Lemon, 
this was the one situation that he had control over. He had control over his own fear. He knew what to expect. And so he was very ashamed when he displayed that fear. And then afterwards he said, okay, I'm going to go back and I'm going to take control. And that's why he pulled out his own tooth. Not because he wanted to overcome some fear. Because at the end of the day, that fear is still going to be there. It was more to show that he had control in that situation. He had control over something that he was afraid of. And finally he could show that this is one thing that I do have control over. This is one fear that I can conquer. And I think that to the soldiers that seemed so brave because they were being put in a situation where they were bombarded by fears of death and fears of the unknown that they couldn't conquer and instead they just had to hide from. But this was something that he didn't necessarily had to hide. He didn't necessarily have to hide from. And instead he could face it head on and he did. I think this also kind of relates to soldiers' willingness to endure physical pain uh, over emotional pain, um, because we saw this as Kurt Lemon. Um, you know, he most of us uh, in an instant we would tell our friends the truth and be honest with them and um, confront them about our deepest, darkest fear. Um, because if they didn't accept us, then they were just a bad person and it's not worth it them um, their time. But for Kurt. He was willing to pull his own tooth out. He was willing to endure this insane amount of pain simply to not look physically weak and to be numb to his emotions. This willingness to experience physical pain rather than emotional pain, I think, really speaks to this idea of fake courage. Um, you know, I think that in our minds and even in the minds of the soldiers, um, courage and bravery and heroism is the willingness to face physical pain but you know i think that o'brien is arguing that like through this false courage which is basically the men telling themselves that they're not scared trying to kind of hide the emotional baggage of fear the emotional baggage of war and especially the emotional baggage of death by kind of prolonging this act of not caring and really just trying to destroy the reality of what was really going on i think that it really relates back to the idea that Courage is willingness to face emotional pain. It's willingness to accept the true emotions of the situation rather than, you know, putting your physical body at risk. Um, so, you know, this example of Kurt really just trying to face emotion, I mean, physical pain and pull out his tooth rather than, you know, displaying what he believes is cowardice really speaks to, like, another layer of fake courage where he's afraid to admit to himself what even the smallest bit of emotional pain or emotional damage or any type of fear is and you know this lack of admission is really just it's not courage it's not his willingness to say oh I'm gonna hurt myself I'm because I'm brave it's more of a willingness to do anything and to kind of you know cover up his true self and cover up how he feels by any means and at the end of the day O'Brien is arguing that that's not courage Another instance in which uh, morality is challenged in the book is in the chapter on the Rainy River, which we touched on earlier. The narrator faced moral confusion uh, when he was drafted in Vietnam because he didn't believe the war was justified and he felt wrong about going to fight there. He also provided insight um, when he says on page 39, you can't fix your mistakes in war. Once people are dead, you can't make them undead.
Uh, and I think this sort of speaks to his own values as an individual. Um, and the fact that he did end up going to war is just a complete contradiction of his morality um, in that original statement. Um, because he's he's right. You can't you can't bring people back. And that's something that soldiers often fail to recognize and um, become numb to uh, as they end up killing more and more people and committing acts that they earlier would deem unthinkable. Mm-hmm. I also feel like um, this was so important because it might not even have been against his initial what he thought were his morals so much, but it was really against his sort of sub like subconscious morals, mm-hmm. right? He really believed that his life was on a certain traje- uh, trajectory, right? He was going to go to college, he was going to get a job, settle down, have kids, but this getting drafted throws a whole wrench into that plan. And he really deep down believed that it was moral of him to have that life, that he deserved that life. And because um, because this happened to him, he thought that this scenario was sort of a violation of his own morality, right? Why do I have to go, right? I, I, I'm liberal, right? You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think this also relates to the relationships uh, influence thing we were talking about earlier. Uh, on page 42, he says... It was a kind of schizophrenia, a moral split. I couldn't make up my mind. I feared the war, yes, but I also feared exile. Uh, I was afraid of walking away from my own life, my friends and my family, my whole history, uh, everything that mattered to me. I feared losing the respect of my parents. I feared the law. I feared ridicule and censor. Um, And he talks so much in this quote about his family and his friends and those around him. And that really, I think, was the deciding factor um, in his choice to go to Vietnam. Um, Because he was so close to escaping it. He was so close... Um, to finally making the decision that he thought was right for himself. Uh, but then when he thought about those around him and their expectations and how disappointed they would be, even though he didn't know this um, for a fact, it was just the possibility of letting down those who you are close with that really brought him to make a decision that completely went against his morals. This relates to our thesis because while everybody else saw going to war as courage, um, the narrator really saw it as fear of failure and judgment, and that motivated him to go do unforgivable, unforgivable things and set aside uh, what he considered his most intimate values. Um, he stayed in a lodge on the Rainy River uh, in Canada, and I think when he decided to go there, he had every intention in um, staying in order to you know, stay true to himself and what he believed in, even if it meant writing an apology letter to his parents. Um, on page 55, it said, And what was so sad, I realized, was that Canada had become a pitiful fantasy, silly and hopeless. It was no longer a possibility. Right then, with the shore so close, I understood that I would not do what I should do. I would not swim away from my hometown and my country and my life. I would not be brave. That old image of myself as a hero, as a man of conscience and courage, all that was just a threadbare pipe dream. I think this is one of the only moments um, in the story where um, the author is directly saying, you know, it is courageous to go against what you think is wrong and like stand up for what you believe in. Because he's saying, you know, it's, it was a dream to go to Canada. It was a dream to, a fantasy, he says, um, to, you know, do the right thing and swim away from his family, but at the same time uh, prioritizing his morals. And in the end, he set this aside because he considered it a dream. Um, and he had to have this fake courage, as we talked about earlier. Yeah, and on page 57, he says, I would go to war. I would kill and maybe die. Because I was embarrassed not to. And even though a lot of people would see courage as going to war and putting yourself on the line, it's really just a false sense of courage. Really more so, as he says, embarrassment, right? 
because a lot of people would deem him a coward, deem him deem him un, unpatriotic, and even if he died a hero, um, in the other reality in which he actually did run away, in other people's eyes, he would um, have lived long enough to see himself become the villain. In my opinion, there are a couple of things that the military takes out of every soldier, out of every Marine. And it's something that they never really put back. The first thing is empathy. The ability to care about how somebody else is feeling. Now, for me, that makes sense. How can you take a man's life if you're thinking about his family? If you're thinking about his young daughter or his elderly mother that he's caring for. To take a life requires a certain degree of emotional numbness. And while that's effective in combat, it's not necessarily effective in your marriage. While the military doesn't take away a soldier's will to live, for some it takes away their excitement for life in the process of instilling emotional numbness in preparation for killing. This quote from Das directly relates to something that O'Brien wrote on page 176. Um, Over the years, that coldness had never entirely disappeared. There were times in my life when I couldn't feel much, not sadness or pity or passion, and somehow I blamed this place for what I had become. And I blamed it for taking away the person I had once been. For 20 years, this field had embodied all the waste that was Vietnam, all the vulgarity and horror. And I think that that's one of the more powerful quotes in this whole book. Um, You know, if you think about it, war really does something to a person. And this coldness that is kind of being described is kind of this feeling that, you know, to be a soldier, you need to be prepared to give up your morals. And I think that that ability to do so, to take away your morals and to be able to turn it off and on, you know, based on the instance is something that never truly leaves you. And I also think that it's something that takes a part of you forever. And I think that O'Brien feels this. And I think that Doss in that quote is also talking about the same thing where once you learn how to turn your humanity on and off, how do you feel like you used to? Um, you know, how are you able to live a life that you're happy about, and how are you able to love people like you used to, um, when you know that, you know, you were able to turn something that was so much a part of you off just to take a life, and so, you know, O'Brien also says on 197, there was a coldness inside of me, I wasn't myself, I felt hollow and dangerous, um, I think that that was one of the things he carried, and I think that that's something that all of them carried, um, this coldness and this, you know, this ability to really abandon themselves and abandon who they once were. And I think that, you know, to tie this to the end of the book, when O'Brien is talking about how his story of Timmy, his, you know, him himself as a young boy is really, he's trying to save himself from this lack of morality that he was taught. And I think that that's really powerful because, you know, Timmy almost represents somebody that wasn't tainted by the idea that courage is a lack of morals. He wasn't tainted by the idea that morals will hold you back from getting what you need to do 
done. And so he's trying to bring himself back through stories, and so in the end I think that this kind of message about courage and morals and this message about losing oneself through being a soldier and through seeing something so traumatic and through doing things that will traumatize you and others, you know, that's kind of the truest war story you can ever tell.